The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, December 6th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, everybody's talking about that GAO report on empty federal offices. Plus, two agencies make a catalog of big solar energy projects across the country. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, NASA is preparing for that return trip to the moon. Its Artemis mission is planning on a crewed lunar landing in 2025, or at least this decade. In support of Artemis, NASA is looking at ways to more quickly transmit data from space to Earth. For a closer look at the data work behind the mission, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with NASA's chief data officer, David Salvanini. As you can imagine, NASA is a very data-rich environment. And there is an enormous appreciation for the value of data here at NASA because data fuels everything we do. Data fuels scientific research. It fuels all of our open science initiative work. In 2023 was the year of open science, which NASA was very, very uh, prominent in supporting. It fuels all of our missions from a risk mitigation perspective and from a program development perspective. You think about our current mission, Artemis, and our endeavor to return to the moon after 50 years, that's all fueled with data. And it's fueled with current data, but it's also fueled with data from the past, uh, harvesting knowledge and uh, lessons learned from the Apollo era. We are a very data-centric organization by default. Now, that's not to say there aren't opportunities for us to mature, and that's exactly where I'm focused. I'm looking at those opportunities and I'm figuring out, okay, how do we advance the ball for NASA? How do we even do more than we're currently doing? And in some of my early learnings, I've, I've realized that, you know, like any organization, there are people who tend to like to hold their data tight not necessarily make it as broadly accessible as a chief data officer would certainly like to see. So those are some of the things that we're looking to tackle. Creating an environment of share first, as opposed to limiting access, breaking down some of the barriers to sharing that uh, may be in place due to either organizational lines, mission lines, any number of different reasons. And then really, Part of sharing is really discovery. So if an officer at NASA is looking to do work, they've got to be able to discover data before they can even expect it to be shared with them. So right now, I would say one of my key priorities is is putting in place some technology to enable enriched discoverability of data, enriched discoverability across all data holdings, across all corpuses of information, so that people can make a request to gain access to data if they don't currently have access. And keep in mind, my My view of data management is such that discoverability and access are two very different things. You may be able to discover data that you maybe won't have access to for any number of different reasons, but first and foremost, you have to be able to discover it, and then you have to be able to pursue whether access is reasonable and or whether the data itself can actually solve the problem you're looking to solve for whatever project you're working or pursuing. Can you explain a little bit more about the tech solution that you're discussing here in terms of making that data more discoverable to the employees at NASA? How is that going to work and what are the steps to make that reality? Yeah, so we have a number of threads as part of this project right now. One of them is quite candidly just an inventory and a catalog. In other words, what data do we have? Do we have metadata that describes the data? Is that data inventoried and is that current? Uh, so that's a quite a rudimentary way of perpetuating discovery. Another is, is to look at, okay, we have a lot of data sources. We have a lot of indexes that sit on top of those data sources. But what is commonly found in a lot of organizations is, is that an employee has to know what system to tap or search to find the results they're looking for. And what I would like to do instead is put in place a top tier search capability where a NASA officer or employee can go to one place, render a search, and have that search passed across 
any number of different systems through some type of API call or connector, and then results just come back to that single place. So basically a single point of entry for a search that is able to cast a broad net across all the holdings at NASA and tap all those indexes of information that we have and bring results back. That's not to say that someone who's doing science discovery work or someone who's doing aeronautics work wouldn't go to a, a specialized system to do searches, but this is really about discoverability. So it's about people finding out about data that exists at NASA that they may not otherwise be aware of. So that's the approach to the top tier search capability that we look to put in place. We're doing some piloting with a number of different vendors. We are putting out an RFI that's going to solicit some information from vendors who would like to offer their thoughts and their recommendations on how a problem like this could be solved. We're also talking to some of the hyperscalers about some of the capabilities that they may be able to offer as part of their native cloud service offerings. So those are a couple of threads of work that are being pursued under that initiative. It seems to me, just hearing all that, David, that one of the things about NASA is that it does not lack for data, far from it. I think it collects a treasure trove of data, but just knowing where to look can be part of the challenge, or just getting your arms around all of that data can be a challenge. Whether it is just that volume of data or other things, what comes to mind in terms of NASA's particular data challenges, what do you see as the most prominent challenges around making effective use of that data and how are you looking to get around those? Well, I think some of the challenges are related to, let me just sum it up as say culture. There is a culture that I would say quite candidly consistent across a lot of organizations where the first thought is not to share, but to hold as something of value that is specific to a particular effort. And in some cases, maybe even protect some of that data in a way that limits access by others. I think there's a human tendency by some to see the value of the data that they have and for a number of reasons, not necessarily think to make it available to all and or share uh, that data more widely. And I'm speaking generally. I'm not necessarily speaking explicitly at NASA, but in some cases, maybe there's competitive sentiment. In other cases, it could very well be that there's concern that the data, if shared with others, could be misused and misinterpreted. This in particular is a challenge with some of the very sophisticated data sets that we hold, where unless you're a specialist in a particular field, you may not be able to interpret the data in a way that's accurate. And as such, you could arrive at a faulty conclusion. So I think it's largely cultural. And what we look to do to mitigate some of those cultural impediments is just raise awareness, raise awareness. And I, and I think quite candidly, a great example of that awareness rising is uh, in the open science community where NASA realized that, OK, we've got amazing intellectual capacity within this organization, but our ability to solve problems internally is good, great, quite advanced, but it's even better if we share some of the problems that we have more broadly and we solicit the thoughts from external contributors. Hence, the open science community that is quite pervasive and the notion of citizen scientists contributing to some of our work. So I think that's the two opposite ends of the extreme. You look at the great example of open science and you look at some of the maybe legacy behaviors where people are less apt to share some of that data. And you quickly find that there's far more value in sharing and opening up the aperture of contributors than there is to limiting the ability for people to gain access to that data and, and contribute to mission outcomes. One thing that's unique about NASA and its data mission is just the extremes to which it gathers data. You mentioned that Artemis program, NASA, of course, is gathering data from things that are pretty far flung from Earth, you know, the moon and beyond. In terms of that data gathering and just keeping pace with NASA's mission as it grows and evolves and as technology grows and evolves, how are you seeing the data side of the mission changing to keep up with that? Certainly, there is a recognition of the value of the cloud and the value that uh, cloud hosting, cloud services brings as an accelerant and also the volume and capacity that cloud providers are able to uh, support. So the organization recognizes that and the organization seeks to move even more toward cloud services over time, just because of, again, there's an economy to be had there. And cloud services offer a, a number of tiers 
of services that range in price based on the use case and the ability of NASA to be able to optimize for a particular mission using those cloud offerings is quite appealing. You can see that NASA is pursuing advanced communications technology for space-based systems, technologies that will allow us to move more data more rapidly. So orders of magnitude, more bandwidth available because as you know, the sensor technology increases in sophistication, the resolution of the images and some of the other data collected increases and therefore you have to have a way of moving that data. The other thing when we think about what Artemis is going to do is with a persistent presence on the moon and with a station in orbit around the moon, there'll be a lot of data there as well. Those platforms become a way in which we can relay information in an efficient manner, you know, from uh, deeper space-based sensors uh, back to Earth for analysis. And then more recently, you may be familiar with the OSIRIS-REx mission where we actually brought a sample back from Bennu, an asteroid that was many, many miles, many, many light years away from Earth. And that is yet another example of, of moving a sample back to Earth so that it can be analyzed as well. So NASA is always looking at ways to further its exploration by uh, being able to um, harness some of the data that becomes available to us through these uh, various sophisticated sensors that, that are deployed, not only in space, but also on Earth. Spreading the message of a data culture can be a longer road for some versus others. Now, when I think of NASA, I think that that's a, an agency that is pretty well versed in all things data and all things technology. When it comes to, David, just going beyond your own CDO office and, and getting that data message out to folks, how is that going? I mean, in terms of spreading that culture, that data-centric culture to NASA, is it a lighter lift than perhaps you might have seen at some of your other agencies? And how do you see that journey looking going ahead of, of making sure that, you know, some data literacy is promoted throughout the entire NASA workforce? This is a, a great area of optimism for me as a, as a new data officer and a new civil servant, new executive here at NASA. As I do outreach, as I talk to governance boards, as I talk to executives across NASA, um, the message, I'm connecting with a need that they have. David Salvanini is NASA's chief data officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, two agencies make a catalog of big solar energy projects across the country. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Everywhere you look, it seems, you see more land covered by solar panels. In fact, the Energy Department estimates some 4,000 large solar projects are underway in the U.S., now, thanks to Energy's Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and the U.S. Geological Survey, solar watchers can access a database of these projects. It shows their size, location, and other details. For the whys and hows of this project, we turn to the director of the Energy Department's Solar Energy Technology Office, CETO, Becca Jones-Albertus. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. Tell us, first of all, the scope of what's going on in the country. Who's building these things? What purpose do they serve? And where are they in general? Yes, it's an incredibly exciting time for solar in this country. Uh, solar installations are just taking off. Ten years ago, we only had a couple hundred large-scale solar installations, and solar was still a, a tiny share of our electricity supply, and it's been growing rapidly over the last decade. And now we have uh, solar generating 5% of our electricity, and almost each year it's, it's getting larger. A lot of that, about two-thirds, is supplied by large-scale solar power plants, which we now have 4,000 of in this country. And those are plants that are at least uh, a megawatt in size, uh, which is about five acres of land or larger. They can be much larger. They can be uh, 100 times that large or they can be smaller. So there's a diversity out there of, of what you can see from things that are just a, you know, a few acres to things that are hundreds of acres that still count as a large-scale solar power plant. And are these being mostly constructed by privately held utilities or by, I guess, maybe 
military could be building them for its purposes? Who's actually behind all of these projects? These projects are being developed by developer companies who are typically privately held. They can also be working closely with utilities or utilities themselves can be developing projects. Uh, there's a diversity among these uh, 4,000 projects out there of how they're developed, but they're developed uh, typically by, by different companies and then installed by companies that do engineering and, and installation. And they can have a diversity of, of owners as well who own the projects and or get the power from them. And just out of curiosity, does anybody ever question whether this is the best way to consume beautiful landscapes and deserts and, and grassy glens by covering them with solar panels and fencing them in? There certainly are parts of the country that have been concerned about what it means to uh, deploy solar on those lands. Uh, but for some perspective, the Biden-Harris administration has a goal of uh, having a completely clean electricity supply by 2035. Doing that would need about 6 million acres of land for solar, and that's about a third of a percent of all the land in this country. So, you know, 6 million acres is is certainly a significant amount of land, but I do think that, that sometimes people think those numbers are even larger. So again, we're talking about about a third of a percent of, of land for solar. And again, just out of curiosity, from a technical standpoint, are developments happening in these square mirrored types of panels such that maybe... It would take one acre at some point to generate the power that two acres would require, you know, 10 years ago. Yes, efficiencies of the panels have been going up steadily every year. And so it is taking uh, less land than it used to to generate the same amount of power. And just again, before we get to the database itself that we're talking about, besides the panels, there is other pieces of infrastructure that have to accompany these wiring. And I guess there's some electronic control rooms or a server farm or something that goes with them? So the panels are held up by structural supports. Um, typically, we call them trackers. They're um, largely made of stainless steel, and they move the panels um, throughout the day. Not all large plants um, have panels that move, but most do. So they move as the sun moves throughout the sky to maximize the energy production. And then there are also power electronics that go with these systems. So solar panels generate direct current electricity and our power grid runs off of alternating current. So there's power electronics that that change that um, power into what the grid is using and then typically put that power that's generated by the sun and the solar panels onto the grid. All right. We're speaking with Becca Jones-Albertus, director of the Solar Energy Technologies Office, CETO, at the Energy Department. And so with one of the big national laboratories and the United States Geological Survey, you developed a database. Tell us about why you did that, what that entailed, and then we'll get into who might use it. Yeah, so we supported uh, DOE's Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and partnered with uh, USGS to develop a map of all of the large-scale solar projects in this country. Um, so far, the map goes through 2021, but we're you know updating it with newer projects as well. We did this to provide more information for a broad set of users on the solar that is being developed uh, in this country. And it gives information about the type of facility it is, how large, how much land, other other attributes of these projects as well. So this is Anything from um, can be used by the public to understand trends in solar deployment and where solar's going. The solar industry can use it to think about new sites and doing their planning. Researchers can use it to really think about interactions between PV facilities and the natural environment or what benefits they're providing to host communities. And then federal and state agencies can use this data to look um, at a number of the different impacts that can come from having solar development, be that on wildlife or land use or grid resiliency. And so we're, we're providing a lot of information in the data set here that uh, we're hopeful will be useful to a broad array of stakeholders. And how do you know where they are to be counted? That was work that we did with USGS and um, also Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, where they did geospatial mapping. They utilized other information that's collected by the Department of Energy's Energy Information um, Agency. And they did hands-on uh, work and research themselves, which included taking these these maps and actually drawing outlines of, of how large the plants are by hand. You can see a solar array of large scale of at least a megawatt, probably from an aircraft. Can you see them from space? Can satellites see them? Yes, yes. The satellite uh, software, you go on software platforms like Google Maps and zoom in, you can see solar plants. So they're jagged outlines, but of made up of many uniform rectangles, you might say. Yes, 
Yes. Almost like a mosaic, I suppose. The database, what form is it? Is it a pure database that you would need to develop applications to use, or is it something that someone could download or access and start looking? Yeah, you can go on the, the website itself, actually, and it has a great viewer system where you can zoom in and look at the systems themselves and hover over them and get all the information about the plants. So there's this great interactive viewer that uh, that anyone can take advantage of that's on the website today, as well as the underlying data that's accessible. And by the way, where is the biggest one located? I don't know. We can get back to you. The largest plants in general are in the southwest U.S. Where you have a lot of open land and where you have a lot of sunshine, I guess, would be the obvious reasons there, huh? Yes. Yeah. By the way, whatever happened to the idea of where all of the mirrors point to one spot, which gets really hot and generates, is that still something that's done? Yes. That's called concentrating solar thermal power, and we're continuing to develop and advance that technology. One of the reasons that we're still excited about uh, concentrating solar power, or CSP, is that it's pretty easy to couple with storage. And so it can produce power not just when the sun is shining, um, but it can produce power at any time of day by um, being able to store that heat pretty efficiently. Uh, so the comparison is using solar panels coupled with batteries, but it turns out it's storing heat is, uh, is another interesting way to, to have storage and have power when the sun is not shining. And I'm imagining knowing where all of these projects lie could help in grid planning and redundancy planning and reliability planning because there is a physical proximity question that comes into play. Fair to say? Yes, absolutely. And what about the rooftops that people are, you know, all these hucksters calling everybody and they'll put a cover your roof and, you know, in my neighborhood there are, people are doing this left and right. Does that figure into the total solar equation that the country is pursuing? Yes. So there's about 4 million rooftops that have PV systems on them, and they uh, provide about 30% of the total power that um, the country produces from solar electricity. So they're a very important part. They are not mapped uh, in this database. This database is just the large-scale PV systems, but those rooftop systems are another uh, very important source of uh, electricity for this country. And what about the wind turbine developments? Are you working on a database for them too? Yes, we uh, actually already had a uh, U.S. wind turbine database established that has locations and specifications for more than 70,000 wind turbines. So now we'll have the wind data and the solar data that are both accessible. So the big challenge now is making sure that the wind farms don't cast shadows on the solar farms. <laughs> Yes. Becca Jones-Albertus is director of the Solar Energy Technologies Office, CETO, at the Energy Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. It was great to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the database at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, relief for defense subcontractors drowning in a sea of contract clauses. But first, everyone's talking about that GAO report on empty federal offices. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The most talked about Government Accountability Office report confirmed what a lot of people suspected. Federal offices are largely unoccupied, a continuation of the situation during the pandemic. Our next guest is the man behind the report, the GAO's Acting Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues, David Maroney. Okay, David, and I think, I think the most obvious place to start is from what GAO has been able to determine, what are some of the reasons behind these huge, huge increases in deferred maintenance expenses or estimates, I guess we should say? Right. So there's a number of reasons. Uh, funding constraints is one. Uh, agencies, when they don't have enough funds to do all their repair and maintenance needs, uh, defer. Uh, those repairs. So that's one of the reasons for the increase. Also, as I think anyone knows who's done a renovation in the past couple of years, uh, material and labor costs uh, have increased substantially uh, due to inflation, and that affects the deferred maintenance backlog too in terms of the size of that estimate. And then a third reason is simply the, the vast size of these federal building and structure holdings. Uh, this is a large and aging portfolio. The average age is about 50 years of many of these buildings at this point. And older buildings just cost more to maintain and repair. Uh, they deteriorate more. And so that also contributes to the increase. 
Yeah, and it seems like it's it's really government wide. I know you really only looked in detail at four large agencies, but you also found I think a fifty eight percent increase government wide in these in these deferred maintenance expenses. It sounds like what you're saying is there's no like singular policy across the government that's caused this. It's a lot of economic factors and a lot of other things. Yeah, that's a fair take. It's economic factors, and then it's just progressively increasing these maintenance backlogs over time for civilian agencies. This was focused on civilians. Right. Um, how reliable can we say these estimates probably are? Because it seems like, by definition, this is work that wasn't done. So I'm going to guess in a lot of cases, agencies really never went out to bid to get reliable cost estimates on what the work would have taken. So again, how reliable are these estimates? So they're reliable enough for accounting purposes, uh, but that does not mean that when you actually conducted this project, it would be this exact number. So I think the number we're talking here, about $80 billion of a deferred maintenance backlog, that's a good estimate of where things stand. It may be higher once you got into the, the actual projects themselves, but it's reliable enough for accounting purposes. And I want to dig into one of your other major findings, was, which is that in their budget materials and other communications to Congress, agencies need to be uh, communicating more information about this deferred maintenance. Um, what are they not telling Congress that they should be telling Congress? So a couple things. Uh, first, they are including information on what's the, you know, at a big level, what's our deferred maintenance backlog, which is good. Uh, but they haven't been explaining the reason for major changes from one year to the next, uh, which is important context for Congress to understand. Uh, they also have not been including information on what is included in these numbers and what isn't. So for instance, in some cases, you may have a building that is in the deferred maintenance backlog, but you're planning to get rid of it in the next year. And so it doesn't really make a lot of sense to invest in those repairs. But in the information being communicated to Congress, agencies aren't being clear about what exactly is in that bucket or not. And then lastly, the agencies are not communicating what portion of the deferred maintenance backlog is mission critical, like what are the most important pieces of this backlog versus some things that might be less urgent. So those those bits of information are important for Congress when it's making funding decisions to really understand the full context of what these numbers mean. Right. And the consequences of those deferrals, I guess, would be one of the most important things you'd want to know, because there's a big difference between a deferral that you know would prevent the failure of a building versus something that you can reasonably put off for a few years with no real consequences. Do agencies have that kind of information that they could be sending to Congress? Oh, they do. The agencies actually internally have a a fairly good, uh, at least the agencies looked at, a fairly good uh, process for prioritizing projects, understanding where their deferred maintenance urgent uh, urgent needs are. Uh, so we're simply saying, well, you should communicate that more wholly to Congress so they can understand as they're making funding decisions. And considering how long federal budget cycles normally take, uh, I'm imagining that that sort of added information is probably not going to start showing up for a few years. Is that a fair expectation? I think that's a fair expectation. Obviously, we're in the midst of, of the next budget cycle right now. So the agencies all accepted our recommendations, all agree with our recommendations. Uh, DOE said they were going to take a look. Uh, so hopefully by, say, FY26, uh, we'll start to see this information in the budget submissions. There, there was a little bit of discussion in the report on, on using models. Can you go into that a little bit? How are agencies doing that, and, and uh, does it seem to be effective? Yes. So of the four agencies we looked at, which were Department of Energy, Department of the Interior, Health and Human Services, and GSA, only one had a a fulsome model, GSA, uh, which they use. And it's an important tool. Uh, It allows them to say, okay, we have a number of deferred maintenance projects. Let's use the model to find out what the best return of our, our investment would be. We have a limited number of funds. How can we get the most for our money uh, using this model? The other agencies, two of them had some modeling capability, but not a fulsome capability like GSA did. And the Department of the Interior didn't use a model for this purpose. So we actually recommended that all three of those agencies take a look, see the costs and benefits of adopting this type of modeling, because we think it is a potential way to get some cost savings, maximize the use of your resources to get these backlogs down. It's just an important issue, both for mission reasons and for financial reasons, right? If these structures aren't holding up over time, it could affect their ability to do what the agencies need them to do. But then obviously for the federal government overall, uh, these are large potential financial costs that are coming due. So important to get our arms around this now. David Maroney is the acting director of physical infrastructure issues at the Government Accountability Office, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post the interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive at your dining room table. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Still to come, relief for defense subcontractors drowning in a sea of contract clauses. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. For smaller suppliers, selling to the Defense Department isn't a walk in the park, but things are getting a little simpler. Last month, the department enacted a long-awaited rule change that prohibits prime contractors from flowing unnecessary contract clauses down to their subcontractors. More changes meant to simplify commercial buying in DOD are still in the rulemaking pipeline. Dan Ramish is counsel at the law firm Haynes Boone. He spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what these changes mean. Dan, thanks for joining us. And, and before we talk about what this rule actually does, I, I'd like you to help us explain to our listeners a little bit the scope of the problem. Certainly, there are always going to be some number of clauses that get flowed down, you know, by operation of other parts of the FAR or statute. But I think what we're talking about here is uh, prime contractors larding up their contracts with clauses that don't have to be in there just to be safe. Is that about right? And and how much of that goes on on a day-to-day basis? Thanks, Jared. So I think anyone who has dealt in any significant way with federal government subcontracts has encountered the kitchen sink flowdown approach, where a prime contractor will include essentially all of the flowdowns that are in its its prime contract with the federal government without any discretion over what does or does not apply. And sometimes there's additional language included in that, but too often the easiest thing for the prime to do is just flow down the kitchen sink. And of course, this presents risk for commercial product and services companies and other subcontractors. And it also presents issues for the federal government that wants this streamlined approach that doesn't drive away non-traditional defense contractors. And so to what extent does this new rule limit that? How much does it help? So this new rule eliminates prime contractors' discretion to include clauses that are not required by the FAR or DFARs. So the the way that the FAR approaches flowdowns for commercial products and services and the DFARs approaches it uh, is different. So the FAR specifies specific lists of flowdowns depending on whether the prime contract is for a commercial product or service or non-commercial, there are, there are different lists. On the DFARS side, DFARS clauses each individually either require flowdown or don't and specify whether there is an exception for commercial products or services or only for commercially available off-the-shelf items. And if there is no exception for COTS or for commercial products or services, the clause needs to be flowed down if it's otherwise applicable and if flow down is required in subcontracts. So uh, what the new language in the DFARS uh, 252, 244, 7000, the subcontracts for commercial products or services clause will do is says prime contractors can only include in commercial products or services subcontracts at any tier, the lists in the FAR at the various locations within the FAR the clauses in the DFARs that specify that they must be flowed down without exempting commercial products or services or COTS items. And that's it. They don't have any discretion to include additional FAR or DFARs clauses. Now, that said, there is an ability for a prime contractor or higher tier subcontractor to address the requirements from the prime contract elsewhere in their terms and conditions for commercial products or services. And they need to do that. There are cases where some prime contractors would have flowed down clauses because they need to for their prime contract, but even though those aren't mandatory clauses. So I'll give you some examples. The uh, convenience termination clause, the prime contract allows the government to terminate the prime contract for convenience. Prime contractor needs to be able to terminate subcontracts and supplier agreements for convenience as well. That's not a mandatory flowdown, but it makes business sense. And they they don't get their relief is going to be limited from the federal government if they don't have the ability to terminate lower tier agreements. The changes clause, the federal government says they have the ability to make changes within the general scope. The prime contractor needs to be able to make the same changes in lower tier agreements with subcontractors and suppliers. And uh, the Buy American Trade Agreements Act. Uh, obligations also aren't mandatory flowdowns, but are restrictions on the sourcing of the prime contractor and need to the obligation to supply end items that are compliant with those statutes must be able to be flowed down. And in the case of the Buy American Act, 
that includes instances of components that need to be compliant with domestic sourcing requirements. So uh, all these are examples where prime contractors, in some cases, might have taken the path of least resistance and just flow down exactly the same clause that was in the prime contract, often with some additional language that explains substitution of terms to make it make the obligations between the prime and the sub similar to the relationship between the government and the prime. Now, prime contractors are going to have to revisit their terms and conditions for commercial products and services to give themselves the rights they need in their subcontracts and supplier agreements to make sure they can uphold their obligations to the government in their prime contracts. And as I understand it, there's also language in the new rule that applies not just to prime contractors, but also tries to impose some discipline on DOD contracting offices, restricting them from adding some unnecessary clauses at the prime level too, right? How does, how does that work? So there is new language. It actually comes directly from the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act that says that the contracting officer shall not use other FAR or DFARS provisions and clauses except for those that are required by the FAR or DFARS or consistent with customary commercial practices. So that's uh, specifically a limit limitation on what the agency can do, what the what DOD, the DOD contracting officer can do in including additional clauses that aren't mandatory in uh, contracts for commercial products or services. Now, there there is some question as to how this will actually play out. Uh, because under FAR Part 12, there is an ability to seek a waiver to get around customary commercial practices uh, in commercial product or services contracts. So it's not clear whether this will limit that uh, in the case of FAR DFARS clauses. Uh, That is a little bit uncertain, but it should be a discouragement from including extra non-required FAR DFARS clauses in DOD commercial product and services contracts. Just almost a side note, as you said, this implements language that Congress passed in the 2017 NDAA, which would have been passed in late 2016. So seven years to translate statute into the final rule. I mean, I, I knew the DFARS rulemaking process was slow, but is it always this slow? Unfortunately, that's all too common. And actually, there are a number of other provisions of the same section of the 2017 NDAA that are still pending. And you know, it, it underscores some of the complexity. One, one of the other things that Congress said in the 2017 NDAA was that DOD needs to define what subcontract means. The 809 panel had said there were numerous different definitions of subcontract, and this is a very basic and important term when it comes to flowdowns uh, and obligations of, of primes and subcontractors uh, under the FAR. And so DOD was looking at, at doing that, and actually the pro- proposed rule had uh, included subcontract definition language in various provisions. And in the final rule, they they backed that out because the FAR has a parallel rule addressing the same issue. So that's one of the complexities where sometimes the DAR Council and the FAR Council are operating in parallel, and there are a lot of moving parts. And mind you, every year a new NDAA comes out, and sometimes the interplay between one year's NDAA and the next year's adds additional complexity. So I can understand it, but it certainly makes life more difficult for contractors. Yes, indeed. Um, I kind of want to wind up toward the beginning of where we started, which was you you made a comment that um, that having unnecessary flowdowns creates risk for subcontractors. Can you just share a little bit what you mean? What kind of risk is involved when you've got clauses that that don't need to be there? Sure. Well, it's possible for flowdown clauses to impose additional obligations uh, compliance obligations. I think that's that's the main thing. And and in many cases, you're dealing with companies that may be non-traditional defense contractors, and they don't even have a full understanding of what their obligations are or are not. And it's a real disincentive for those companies to even participate in the defense market because, because of the uncertainty about what the requirements are for them under the contract. They, they look at this massive list of flowdowns, and they see a lot of very onerous requirements, cybersecurity, domestic sourcing, and there are new requirements every year. And that is a real scary thing for companies that are not 
sophisticated in this area and are new to this area. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney at the Haynes Boone Law Firm, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, December 6th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, everyone's talking about that GAO report on empty federal offices. Plus, Two agencies make a catalog of big solar energy projects across the country. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, with more than 60,000 employees operating in airports and other locations across the country, the Transportation Security Administration has a lot of data. TSA is taking the first steps toward a comprehensive data strategy, while also working to organize its cloud computing environments. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with TSA's Deputy Chief Information Officer, Kristen Ruiz. TSA has a lot of data. We have tons of disparate data. It's a big task, right? So, you know, what we're trying to do is also be considerate of the fact that we have sensitive security information that's also subject to need to know rules and applications. So we have to be careful uh, with those additional complexities to be able to protect from a knowledge management perspective. But we do recognize that this is a huge challenge and we are working on currently building out our own domain structure and architecture that will help us tackle this challenge. You know, when we start talking about this, one may refer to this as a wicked problem. We first have to catalog this data, protect it, govern it for its use and storage, and then we have to share it and we have to make it available across the enterprise. And as technical complexity and security requirements are constantly changing and new emerging technologies and threats are out there, we are starting off in IT with a brand new role that we're currently in the process of hiring for, which is our chief technology officer slash chief data officer. And bringing this person on is our first big step at being able to have a comprehensive data management strategy, which, like I mentioned, is more important than ever. That's interesting that you're combining the CTO and the CDO. I guess that kind of shows how important data is to everything you're trying to do with technology at TSA. Yes. And the simple fact that the foundation for things like artificial intelligence and and other emerging technical areas, um, all are the foundation with the data that we have. They won't be relevant or useful if we don't understand how to leverage and harness the data that we do have. So they go hand in hand, and we really want someone that has expertise in both areas. Okay. And and you mentioned a domain structure architecture that you're setting up? Uh, Just as a quick follow-up, can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and and where that's at in the process? We're looking at utilizing AWS for this new domain structure that we're working on. Our goal, and it ties into the open architecture approach that the administrator's been talking about, but our goal is to allow for our users, our business users across TSA to be able to better access their data and have it readily available. And that means that we have to get away from some of the proprietary technology solutions that we've leaned on in the previous years and look for a more open opportunity. Um, This will also 
allow us to make sure that we have a way to properly secure the data based on the domain specific need, but easily share it where it makes sense. Um, And so we're looking at leveraging more of a data mesh approach. So that's what we're currently doing now. We are at the very beginnings. We've stood up a cloud center of excellence that will be agnostic. So it will cover all of our cloud environments and it will help drive us into the future with this new open architecture and domain structure. It's exciting. And that leads me into kind of my next question, which was uh, whether there are any updates on the implementation of TSA's cloud strategy 2.0. I mean, clearly, as we've just discussed, there are some pretty big things going on with TSA and its use of the cloud. But that strategy, I think, came out in 2019. So and I know you've only been in the job for, for about uh, six or so months, but are there any updates on that strategy and where you're at in this kind of hybrid cloud journey? Yes. Um, well, first, I'll start off by saying <clears throat> that we are currently reviewing that existing cloud strategy and working on updating it. Um, it's time. It needs to continue to evolve, especially as we make new investments in additional clouds. Um, so we are actually actively currently working to update this strategy. In addition to that, we do have a great foothold on software as a service, and we have many implementations and in infrastructure as a service. So, you know, we are working to scale and harness the power of cloud as we continue to make our investments and integrate solutions and data. As we evolve, we're looking to make repeatable, secure solutions and processes. So that will be a huge role that our new CTO, CEO will play in this. But obviously, our COE stretches across all of the different expertise areas within our organization. And the COE, that that seems like it's going to be really central, obviously, as you've mentioned, to TSA's use of the cloud going forward. Is that meant to centralize provisioning? Is it more of sort of a policy center, best practices center? What is that functioning in terms of its role within TSA? Well, I did notice um, when recently joining and speaking with our our CIO here that um, we did have different pockets of like siloed governance type scenarios. So this was a way to be more agnostic and maximize the use of our resources and bring the right people to the table at the beginning. When we get our initial request to come in or our requirement comes in, we'll have the right people at the table to take a look at that and make sure that we select the right solution for their needs. And that includes which platform or hosting environment that would be best suited for. Uh, In addition to that, we'll also be continuing to make sure that we're analyzing current solutions that exist today and if something exists, we can we can maximize that investment rather than constantly, you know, recreating from scratch. So it has multi goals associated with it. In addition to what you first said, which is best practices, standards, you know, 80 percent of what we do will probably be the same regardless of which platform this gets pushed onto um, for its long term home. But there'll be deviations depending on if it's SaaS, if it's, you know, PaaS, whatever it is that we're choosing for this particular need. So that's why it makes the most sense to have the right people at the table to get the right solution. And yeah, I mean, I'd love to know a little bit more about TSA's approach to determining what workloads to move into the cloud you know, what to maintain on premise, whether there's an approach to choosing public cloud versus private cloud. I'm sure that's, you know, there's a lot of applications and data at TSA. How, how do you kind of work through those, those questions? It depends. <laughs> it's a case by case basis, right? So we have, there's a lot of factors that go into that, especially in an organization where security is our middle name, right? So we really have to take a look at each and every requirement and make sure that we're choosing the right cloud or right hosting environment for the needs, right? There are multiple variables that we include from business case, cost of ownership, security, access controls, and governance. We do have over 60,000 employees here that are responsible for security transportation. So, you know, we have to make sure that we take all these variables into consideration. And so there's no simple way to address the methodology in one one big bang approach. We have to be flexible and tailor it to the needs of the requirement. And so that's where we're hoping our COE will help us to be able to develop the guidance that we'll need and to provide the technical review team as these requirements come in. 
you mentioned how you're putting in place this data mesh architecture, and I wonder if that kind of lines up with what TSA is doing with the more kind of general open architecture roadmap that it released back in July, talking about moving to standards-based interoperable equipment. Is is that a part of kind of the, the same push, kind of getting to plug and play, I guess, kind of technology? I think it's twofold, right? So IT is the backbone for TSA, right? So we're going to support everything on the OT and the IT side when it comes to the network. We're there to make it available to both sides. So we're helping working on the team on the administrator's goal for the open architecture on the OT side of things. But we are also working in parallel to make sure that we can also support the administrator's intent for data-driven decision-making. And so part of that is looking at how we can be efficient with our data and making it available across the different domain areas that we mentioned so that we can gain the efficiencies and speed to impact. When people need the information, they'll be able to get it. You know, you've referenced how security and resiliency, that's that's the, the beginning and the end, I guess, at TSA. It's That's what it's all about. How do you ensure the security and resilience of the data that you manage across all these different environments? Cybersecurity is at the forefront of everything that we do. Um, I will say that our cyber team continues to excel and and they've recently just received um, the designation of center of excellence for DHS. So that's, that's a testament to the hard work that they do. And they make sure that they're constantly looking for opportunities to improve, um, do additional penetration testing, work with CISA directly to make sure that we have the most secure environment that we can. Because like you say, with emerging technology, there's sophistication out there on the cyber side. So, you know, the other thing that we are doing is we're focused on zero trust and that will be a huge uh, game changer for us as we move forward. So that way, even if someone were to somehow get access, it's the resiliency that we'd be able to demonstrate and recovering from that quickly. And I know that Director Easterly is always talking about resiliency and making sure that we secure by design at the beginning, but we know that nothing is foolproof. And if someone were to get in, we are ready and we will be resilient and and execution of zero trust. You know, I I do want to talk about your teams and how TSA is building the skills it needs to continue moving forward with all the things we've talked about today around data management, open architecture, security, and so forth. How how are you getting after that? I know talent uh, today is so important. Yeah. um, And actually speaking about IT workforce development is probably the the goal that I get most excited about. Kristen Ruiz, TSA's Deputy Chief Information Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, two agencies make a catalog of big solar energy projects across the country. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.